0: Hello and welcome to InfoLinks on the Record. I am Kurt Teese.
1: And I'm Olivia (laughs) Winkler.
0: We're here with Mark Williams at White & Case in Washington, D.C. Mark, welcome. Thank you, good to be speaking with you today. So for those who may not be familiar with White &
2: Case, maybe tell us a little bit about the firm and your role. Sure, so White & Case is an international law firm. We have offices in over 30 countries. I think we're up to maybe 43 offices now. Mm I am in the data privacy and cybersecurity practice here in Washington, DC. We advise companies on compliance. We also do a lot of mergers and acquisition counseling, Mm -hmm. data reach work as well.
0: Fantastic. So, we appreciate you participating not only in today's podcast, but the recent roundtable that we had on data privacy. So we wanted to share with our, our listeners a little bit more about your insights and your background and also find out a little bit more about you and how you came to be involved in this. So tell us a little bit about your early background, back before data privacy Um, and working at
2: White & Gates. It's been a long time. So I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, in the mountains and went to Wake Forest and also in North Carolina. I worked on Capitol Hill for a while in politics. Is Asheville, is that where the Biltmore? That is where the Biltmore House is, yes. It's a very arts and touristy town. So you're in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. went to school there, and what did you study? business, which I really enjoyed, but I've always been involved and drawn to politics and decided to go work on Capitol Hill after I graduated. So I worked for US Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina okay. in his press office. I started off as a staff assistant answering phones and then weaseled my way into the press office and left there to work on John McCain's campaign in 2008. It was great. It was a very satisfying work. It felt extremely meaningful to help the people of North Carolina and work for a a really good guy, very much enjoyed working for the senator, who by all accounts really took his job very seriously and and tried to act in the best interests of his constituents. And I had great friends there as well. Mm -hmm. And it taught me a lot. Actually, there's a tremendous amount of overlap between being a lawyer and working in PR. You have to be careful about what you say, Mm -hmm. to think about what messages you're trying to convey? Mm-hmm. You have to be very, as I said, careful and disciplined, which is a, a good skill to have in the legal profession as well. Sure. And then before getting into law, you had a business and that's right. Yeah. So I, um, so I started working for Burr's office, and there was a woman I worked with who was doing the press clips every morning, and it took her like an hour and a half. Yeah. And the press clips are something for the senator in the office, and it will it will list all the articles in which the senator was mentioned, and then you would also pick out articles of interest, maybe things going on in North Carolina nationally. It took her maybe an hour and a half, and it was very manual and cumbersome, and I thought, you know, this just seems like a very inefficient process. So I wrote a computer software to automate that in a kind of a very Bush League way, but
0: mm-hmm.
2: that's how I got into the, the senator's press office. They hired okay. me on as a press assistant. After the McCain's campaign wound down, I thought you know there might be a market for this software among political campaigns and Senate offices. So Mm -hmm. I taught myself more about how to code, Mm -hmm. and I wrote a more automated and robust system and sold that to political campaigns and Capitol Hill offices. What were you programming in back? C Sharp and SQL. Sure. Okay. And linked to SQL. All right. And
0: so, you took that to market
2: to other I campaigns did. and mm-hmm. built a business around that? Right. Great learning experience. I actually got to work with some lawyers on fundraising and getting their corporate documents in shape and all of that. And that was a, a good introduction to business law and how yeah. lawyers can add value. So when did law school
0: come into play?
2: Law school came into play after the business. I had always been interested in the law when I was little. I had interned in high school for the US attorney's office and wow had worked for some law firms in college and it just seemed like kind of the natural next step for me. And so I went to to law school and technology kind of kept coming up and coming up as did business law. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. when I began working at White and Case it was a, a natural transition was to work in the, the data privacy and cybersecurity group. Which today is all the conferences.
0: Right. Uh, it's the topic that everyone is not only concerned with but eager to learn learn more about. It is about. a growing dynamic field for sure. <laughs> and where, where did this come from? How has this become such a headline
2: issue? I think it's been, people like to talk about tipping points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of discussion over the past five years or so that's progressively picked up. And then maybe in 2016, the press really started to get a hold of the whole data privacy issue. There were some scandals involved in some large technology companies. And over the past couple of years, it seems like the public has begun to digest that. And now there seems Mm -hmm. to be more of an, an appetite and interest among the public and their foreign politicians in this issue. I think also... If you look at the jurisprudence, the jurisprudence of, of data breaches and data privacy has changed over the past fifteen or so years as judges have started to wrap their head around what exactly data privacy is and, and the impacts that can and harm that can arise from data breaches. Yeah. So it's just been a long process. And and I think in our information governance circle,
0: GDPR certainly has brought it to the, the forefront, right. and then the California Act. So how has that fit into sort of your timeframe? Has that had an impact? Was that
2: something that you saw coming? Oh yeah, well the GDPR has been, and they talked about that for a long time before it was actually enacted, and the, the Europe had the Data Protection Directive, mm-hmm. which had been in place for 15 or 20 years before mm-hmm. the GDPR was passed. And the Data Protection Directive, or the DPD, was also a pretty thorough data privacy regulation. The GDPR kicked it up a notch, mm-hmm. to say the least, and also brought a lot of attention to the field. And the, the GDPR was very much crafted, well, it's a, it's a prototypical, I think, European approach to things versus American approach to things, but it was it was definitely crafted with an eye towards keeping, I think, certain industries in check. Okay. And a lot of those industries are based in the United States. So maybe for for people
0: less familiar with GDPR, because I think it is interesting that we talk about it so much here in the United States, but it's not a U.S. law no. or standard.
2: No, it's a it's a very much a European concept. I think the the Europeans approach data privacy as kind of a as a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the GDPR applies to pretty much all data that is either machine read or manually collected but in as part of a filing system so the breadth of the law is extremely extremely broad and not only does it apply to all of all of that data that i just discussed but it also places a tremendous amount of restrictions on that data from the get go if i collect data say from a webs on a website i have to have a reason for collecting that data okay. that is codified in the GDPR. And if I don't have one of those, if there's not a lawful basis of processing that data and all processing means is doing something with that data, if there's not a lawful basis for processing that data then I can't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. So it's so very different than the United States where you kind of can, can do what you want more or less.
1: Why do you think you're Europe- treats it as like a civil rights issue? Because, you know, we've talked about that, the data privacy event, that Europe and America have very separate views of what constitutes privacy and what people should have a right to keep and what companies should have a right to keep. Why do you think it's so different over there versus here?
2: You know, a lot of people have theorized on that. And one of the theories is that there's a, a history, especially in Eastern and Central Europe, of surveillance under the the Warsaw Pact states or the Soviet bloc.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: you think about uh, East Germany, the Stasi was had a very intense surveillance regime, Germans in particular are extremely sensitive to what data is collected about them and how that data is used. Mm-hmm. There is also a theory that maybe Europe approaches the needs of business a little differently than the United States may approach the the needs of business. I think we have a much more laissez-faire approach Mm -hmm. in the United States to the economy in general. I think Europe has a, a much more interventionist approach, at least historically, and this goes along with that.
0: California being the first, what sort of precedent does that set? And
2: will that cascade through the other states? Will there be a national law? That's a good question. We'll see. Um, (laughs) If you look at the laws that have been introduced since the CCPA passed, you'll see that a lot of those laws were modeled after the CCPA, some very closely, some are less aggressive forms of the CCPA, some are, are very limited. New York, there was a bill introduced in the New York State Senate by a senator from Long Island, and that... That bill was, I think, a lot more aggressive than the CCPA mm-hmm. was. It did not pass yeah. out of committee. Because it mm-hmm. was,
1: they named something called like a data fiduciary, correct?
2: Right. There's a rather ambiguous section of the legislation that does place a fiduciary duty on businesses that are collecting data about people and it's. I think it's something that probably a lot of businesses would have a problem with. It kind of realigns the whole, you think about the the way we think about business in the United States typically. Mm -hmm. I'm the consumer, I'm trying to get the best deal, I'm the business, I'm trying to get the best deal, you kind of meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. The fiduciary duty flips out on its head a little bit in, Mm in a certain ambiguous way. The law would place the business a duty to look out for the best interests of the consumer. Right, which which is is you typically don't see in the United States. And that's
1: not how a lot of American companies operate.
2: Right. Yeah. And it also
0: sort of inverts from a records management standpoint the discipline of retention. You have to keep information for a certain amount of time. Right. So your obligation to maintain data. This, as you were saying, is more justifying why you're keeping the data and how long you're allowed to
2: keep it. And you raise an interesting point with the growing data privacy regulations in the United States, especially at the state level, because on the one hand, you have to be really careful about about identity theft, right? Mm -hmm. We have in the U.S., the GDPR kind of treats all data as worthy of protection, and in the U.S., our attitude, especially at the state level, is more... We want to protect data that could lead to identity theft. That's how most states approach their data breach notification laws and that sort of thing. So you have that in one box. And then in another box, you have these growing disclosure obligations, which right now is basically the CCPA. And that highlights this, I don't want to say minefield, but there's a kind of an overlap and ambiguity that could lead to maybe some exposure, some risk exposure for companies, right? I need to comply with this law and this law, and there's a tension between what this law is asking me to do Mm -hmm. and what this law is asking me to do. And it's gonna take a while for all that to shake out, right? And in the meantime, businesses need to find out how they can manage both of those risks effectively. So,
0: We're all seeing, when you go onto websites now, the little banner that pops up, Mm -hmm. accepting the the cookies and the privacy. Right. And you can't get onto the website until you click and say yes. What are we agreeing to when we do
2: that? Well, so I think it depends on what company you ask. Uh Under, especially European law right now, there are a lot of companies who would take the position that you're not agreeing to anything. It's not an agreement so much as it is a notification. The GDPR under their notification requirements do not mandate in all circumstances that data subjects agree to certain things. They just merely have to be notified about certain things. Mm -hmm. I see. And so you'll see a lot of companies, uh, if you watch the language closely, you're not agreeing to the data privacy policy. You are just having an opportunity to read it. And that's because the law merely requires that you be provided notice that you not necessarily agree to it.
1: Can companies, in the United States legal in particular, prepare for possible data privacy changes down the road? So we have California, we have other states following suit. How can these companies be prepared?
2: Well, so the legal industry is like a lot of other industries, right? They they collect a lot of personally identifiable information. They also. And this is something that goes back eons in the legal industry. They also have a duty to protect the information that clients give them, right? They have a a duty under attorney-client privilege, but they also have a duty under a lot of state ethics laws to take steps to protect the information that clients provide to them, right? That's not intensely different than a lot of other industries in the United States. It's also pretty clear from the CCPA and from legislation that's been introduced recently in other states that either there's going to be at some point a federal data privacy law or there's going to be this kind of balkanization of state regimes, Mm -hmm. right? And that can create a lot of compliance headaches Mm -hmm. for businesses if they don't prepare ahead of time. And so right now, businesses should be thinking about how to get their house in order and have a flexible data privacy and cybersecurity regime in-house policies and procedures that will allow them to comply with both their current obligations under laws like the CCPA, if it applies to them, but also future privacy legislation, right? Because it's only, mm-hmm. this is only going to get more complicated and worse. So I think companies need to have, need to start with fundamentals they probably need to be looking at what data they collect mm-hmm. and what they do with the data how they dispose of the data when they dispose of the data they also need to be thinking about how they secure the data and you know the the typical process and review procedures that companies should be undertaking regardless right like having right. a risk committee and having that risk committee have data privacy and cybersecurity people on that mm-hmm. that committee that have a voice a lot of this too just stems from company culture.
1: Right. A
2: lot of companies right now are still a little too dismissive of data privacy and cybersecurity both as a, a risk and as a business benefit, and that culture takes the time to change. So my message to the folks out there that, are in, um, that have a data privacy role within a company, I would say start now and trying to get a seat at the table and change the culture of your firm so these data privacy and cybersecurity issues are appreciated more over time.
0: So who's at that table?
2: So for
0: organizations that this may be newer and they're still developing,
2: where does this role sit? Who has responsibility? Well, I think it depends on the size of your organization. If you're a medium or larger business, especially if you deal with a lot of personally identifiable information, or if you have particularly sensitive information that that would pose a business risk if it were to be hacked, for example, trade secrets or other intellectual property, then you need to be taking this maybe more seriously than than a company that um, only has a handful of employees and is maybe like selling hot dogs and is only dealing in cash, right? So it it needs to scale with your business, but you should be thinking about having, if you have a, a chief information security officer or a uh, chief information officer, they absolutely should be at the table. A lot of larger companies these days have a chief risk officer, which is not looking just at cybersecurity and data privacy and other IT risks, but they're looking at risks on the the financial side. They're looking at risks on the operations side. They absolutely should be at the table, too. Obviously, if you have 50 people at the table, you're not going to get a lot done. But the more you have a handful of leadership folks at the table, the easier Mm -hmm. it's going to be to have a voice when these decisions need to be made and plans need to be put into action as well. So it just kind of depends on how your business is run. The departments that have significant risk exposure should absolutely be part of any risk committee. And is it all risk-based? Is everything in data privacy about? No, no, not at all. I'm, I'm just a, a lawyer, so I think about risk yeah. from the minute I get up until the minute I get <laughs> Uh No, there's an operational side to data privacy as well. We talked on the panel a little bit about the importance of Allo having policies in place. And we see this a lot actually in the M&A context. A lot of companies can have policies in place and then they just sit in a file cabinet somewhere and they're totally ignored. And that obviously presents a business risk, right? But you also gets in the way of the business actually being effective and doing its job. One of the things that I would encourage, not just the risk committee, but CIO and all that sort of thing, is to do privacy reviews where you're actually looking back and saying, okay, are our policies being followed? Are our procedures being followed? How can they be improved? Right? A lot of these policies get out of date relatively quickly, especially right. as the needs of the business change yeah. and that sort of thing. So it's important to undertake maybe quarterly, annually or annual reviews where you're looking back and you're saying, okay, what are we doing? What's working? What isn't? Are we actually following what we're doing?
0: What are the consequences of not following some of the steps you're, you're suggesting?
2: Well, it depends on what information's breached, and there's a lot of ambiguity out there now, but I think as we've seen, the fines from reg- regulators and the settlements and courts can be pretty high. So, and I don't name any names, but there have been some some pretty high-profile data breaches that have resulted in, in multi-million-dollar settlements lately. Also, one one risk that I don't think should be overlooked. I think people like to put dollar values on things, is the risk to the reputation of the business. It's just not good to have your name in print associated with a data breach. And sometimes data breaches happen. That's just a fact of life, the whole saying of it's not when, it's not if there's going to be a data breach, but when there's going to be a data breach. But if you have these policies and procedures in place and you're doing these, say, like SOC 2 assessments or other assessments, you're doing penetration tests and all that sort of thing, they maybe will blow over more quickly, or you'll get maybe less scrutiny from regulators, you'll get more sympathy from regulators if you have. Done the work ahead of time to try to prevent these breaches. When you have plans in place, and that also means data breach response plans, right? You can do all your penetration testing and all that sort of thing. But it's also healthy to have a data breach response plan and to look at it every year and do these tabletop exercises. That way, when something does happen, you can pick up the phone and you know, okay, well, here's the lawyer I'm gonna call. And here's our here's the the core team of folks that are gonna respond to this breach. And We have our insurance company and we have, and we've already selected folks that are gonna get into our systems and see what happens. And we're gonna work with those folks and respond quickly. The the more quickly that you can get running, Mm -hmm. the easier it will be to to handle things down the line. What's the tabletop exercise? So a tabletop exercise is just, um, it's kind of, it's a mock data breach. You get in a table with people and you would go through, okay, this is, an incident that has occurred, and you map out how you would respond, which reduces a lot of the friction that you normally would have, and it saves you from a lot of the time of having to think. Okay, what am I going to do now? You can pick up the phone and get moving. Is it a case where time is of the essence? Absolutely. Is it like the shows like the first forty-eight hours is a <laughs> critical time period? Well, a lot. So the a lot of the on the the legal side you're dealing with state data breach notification laws. So the faster you get a sense of what's happened, the more accurately you can figure out what notices you need to send out, what attorneys general you need to notify, Mm -hmm. if you need to notify attorneys general, if you need to send notices out. A lot of times, you'll think you have a breach, you bring in a forensic firm or you have your folks dig through the data and you realize, okay, the data that was exfiltrated was encrypted. But you only have a certain amount of time to figure that out before you have to send the notices out under state law. So So the quicker you can get moving, yeah. The better the experience
0: is gonna be. Well, and I'm just we've all now experienced receiving notices that we've been included in a breach, our information is out there. But it doesn't seem like the consequences of that are visible. What insights do you have as to what happens with the information?
2: What's the consequence of, of the breach occurring? Data breaches are a fact of life. Companies can take the as as many precautionary steps as possible and they still might suffer a data breach. There are breaches, but that doesn't necessarily mean your identity has been stolen and is being used. Correct. And nine times out of ten or ninety-eight times out of a hundred, you're not going to know who did it or why they did it. And then when you when you do find out it's a lot of times not what you expect, right? It's a disgruntled employee. It's maybe a state actor who's not looking to steal anyone's identity. They're looking for trade secrets or intellectual property or are theoretically being used by the intelligence services for a very specific purpose that is irrelevant to you. So that data may never, may never see the light of day.
1: You know, it's interesting you talk about maybe like a disgruntled employee, like releasing something and I, when I first started influence, I wrote a, like a post about data breaches, and it said like the majority of them actually occur like totally by accident. Like it's maybe somebody's given access to something at a company that they aren't allowed to see everything, but it's like somebody just joined HR, the intern got access to everybody's social security numbers, and like under these laws, like that counts as a data breach because somebody right. saw something they weren't supposed to. And
2: the data breach laws are very formulaic. If you look at them, they will say, okay, name plus social security number, name plus. And other specific identifying information right that highlights the importance of having policies and procedures in place that prevent those sorts of incidents from happening right if the intern doesn't have access to the social security numbers and the intern can't share the social security numbers but that also means that when mistakes do happen you can turn around and you can say oh okay well we have all this stuff in place and we did the best we could and it was a result of human error but from a corporate policy and compliance perspective, we did our best. And that goes for privacy as well too, right? I think as we see more and more privacy obligations being imposed on businesses, you'll see the same focus from a compliance perspective, right? We need to have these policies in place so that when these privacy hookups happen, we can say accurately that we did what we could to prevent this from happening,
0: but it happened nonetheless. So what is the, the similarity or difference between data privacy and
2: cybersecurity? Okay, so data, so I'll start with cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is the, the protection of data from unauthorized use and access. And cybersecurity goes much further than just information about people, right? If mm-hmm. you're Coca-Cola, stereotypically, you want to protect the recipe to Coke, Secret formula. The mm-hmm. secret formula, right? If mm-hmm. you're a pharmaceutical company that is heavily dependent on IP, you want to protect that. If you're, let's say, in the defense industry, you really want to keep an eye on cybersecurity because, A, you have certain cybersecurity obligations imposed on you by the Defense Department, but you also want to protect that from use by other potentially unfriendly countries, right? I think mm-hmm. that a lot of defense contractors are targeted for hacking for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Data privacy, on the other hand, has to do with the actual use of data. And that is, as we talked about earlier, is, is being more and more viewed as a civil rights issue, right? That's my data, and how are you using that data? Are you giving that data to other people? Yeah. How are you using that data yourself? When are you deleting that data? You need to delete that data. You don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of the focus of the GDPR businesses can use data and businesses do use data for the benefit of consumers right there's a lot of discussion about businesses using data for advertising one could argue that that's absolutely a good thing Mm -hmm. for consumers because that means that consumers are being shown advertisements that are relevant to them they're not getting random ads for things that they would never buy Right. right they're being shown things that they may purchase or being informed about products that they didn't know about, right? Yeah. It's good for the economy. Or you suddenly get a coupon. You're right, talking you about, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want
0: right. to eat at this restaurant and suddenly something exactly. pops up you're like, yeah. how did they know?
1: My ads are never wrong. I'm like, oh, I would like to buy that. Like, <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so there is a positive side. It Absolutely. just needs to be monitored, regulated. And, and
2: I think you're, you're seeing a lot of businesses move towards saying, okay, let's develop a privacy regime. Consumers have an understanding of how their data is being used. Businesses have a per- predictable obligations as to how they can use that data. Something that's very hard for businesses is ambiguity. And you see that right now with the CCPA. There's a decent amount of ambiguity in some of the CCPA's obligations. And some of that is being whittled down through last-minute changes to the law. And maybe the California Attorney General will, through regulation, will clarify some of the other ambiguities. But that's a burden on businesses, and we spend a lot of time counseling businesses on how to deal with the ambiguities of law. Talk to us a little bit about your particular area
0: with mergers and acquisitions.
2: But companies are increasingly concerned when they are purchasing other companies. They're increasingly concerned about how those companies are using and protecting the data that they have, and so white in case when they are advising, typically an acquirer, but also sometimes banks, and we'll do the same thing for IPOs. We'll go in and we'll look at a company's data privacy and cybersecurity practices and communicate to our and This is what we're saying. They say that they do this, but it appears that they don't. Or they say that they do this, and it appears that they do in fact do this. They do penetration tests every quarter. They have SOC 2, Type 2 assessments, or they're ISO 27001 compliant or all of these sorts of things. And that gives the business a better idea of what they're buying, right? We go back to businesses not liking uncertainty. A lot of times when a business is acquiring another business, they want to know what they're getting. They want to look under the hood. And we help businesses understand what they're buying.
0: So when you're not involved with data privacy, mergers and acquisitions, cybersecurity, how are you spending your
2: time? Well, I'm getting married and well, there's some news. I think I'm getting married in 18 days. We're going to have to move back to the beginning right, of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's
2: going to be hard to concentrate because I'm getting married in 18 so days. So I'm getting married in 18 days. And so that's my, that's my entire life right now. But otherwise, I, to be a stereotypical lawyer, I enjoy running and reading. Your other passion is reading? Yeah, depending on how, how the day at, at the office goes. What, what type <laughs> of things do you read? Non-fiction. History, politics. So when you're running, is that another time then you're just... Yeah, we're thinking about work. I've solved really great problems running. Mm -hmm. A great way to get the mind working.
0: You've done so many different diverse things. Business, law, technology, politics. Like what's the common thread between this and what's next?
2: I would say that what I'm doing right now is, the, is very much the common thread. I get to advise businesses on compliance with technology laws. The political aspect is something that I'm less involved in than I used to be, but try to stay engaged. What's out there on the horizon? What are some of your next goals? My next goal is to continue learning. This is a dynamic changing field. Data privacy changes by the day. Which is mm-hmm. what makes it so fun and interesting and it's what keeps lawyers employed. Yeah. <laughs> and there I think there's going to be some really interesting stuff happening in the future and I want to be a part of it. Have you seen the practice technology. of law change? Technology is, is definitely becoming more and more integrated into the practice of law day to day. From a records management perspective, that is absolutely the case. A push to, you know, keep things organized using technology. What <laughs> would you advise others. How did you get where you are today? Not to be too stereotypical, but think about what you're interested in and where your strengths lie and try to align what you're doing with your interests and your strengths. Keep an eye out for opportunities and doors that may open and that that involves talking to people and networking when you can. You can talk to people and start a conversation and you'll have no idea where that conversation may lead and may lead somewhere great.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you spending time with us today and making data privacy and cybersecurity so interesting
2: and insightful. Thank you. Good to see you back.
1: If you enjoyed our show, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you have a few moments, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps listeners like you find our show. And if you want to keep up with the latest from InfoLinks, please follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. This is InfoLinks on the Record. Thank you so much for listening.